name is Hermine Hartman, and we're bringing you a very special edition of Indigo Studio, COVID While Black, as we partner with McCormick Foundation. Today, we're going to talk to medics about COVID. Um, what does the medical community uh, have to say, and what does COVID look like to them? What have the experiences been? Joining us will be Dr. Terry Mason. Dr. Mason is a urologist and the former director of Chicago's health department and Cook County's health director. He's a longtime advocate and on healthy living for the black community and teaching in churches and community organizations and schools, noting the health deserts and the disparities. Wanda Matthews is a nurse, and Wanda is uh, with Midwest Express Clinics and provides professional services for urgent care. She's got some interesting experiences to tell us about. Dr. Kyra Barnes is a dentist of Barnes Walton Dental Associates on the south side of Chicago. And Dr. Yetta McCollum is a periodontist, and her practice is the dental dream team, also on the south side of Chicago. Welcome, and thank you all for being with us. Terry, let me start with you. Tell us, if you will, where did COVID-19 come from in the first place? How did we get here? Well, <clears throat> I mean, there's been a lot of debate about this, people speculating that it was even man-made and other sorts of things. But as best as we could tell, we know that the cases that we're seeing in the United States, uh, in our experience as uh, from the Cook County Department of Public Health, we had our first cases as contacts from uh, Hubei province in China. Uh, this was a husband and wife team. And this was the first cases that we had, as you may recall, in the entire Cook County, Chicagoland area. Uh, we did not have the ability at that time to really ramp up testing and or surveillance, trying to find out if there were more early enough to begin to really take charge of the spread of this disease. Um, why is COVID affecting African-Americans more than others? Because everything else affects African-Americans more than everybody else. The numbers- if Every, just, Everything negative, right? Well, we have higher death rates from heart attacks, higher death rates from strokes, higher death rates from cancer. And, and the areas that we live in, uh, you know, one of the things that people underestimate is the chronic stress that we face and chronic stress, whether that's stress to not being able to live and make a wage sufficient enough to take care of your family adequately or to have good housing or schools or violence in your community. But all of these things work on creating stress and stress creates an elevated secretion of a chemical called cortisol. And cortisol is a thing that really is a chemical that really creates other havoc in the body when it's done on a chronic basis. And this cortisol elevates blood pressure. It also creates an environment for more heart disease. So if you look at the history of who we've been and how we've been treated in America, we have always been in those areas where we've not had the same kinds of resources and also more stress and more stressors than most people. So it's not that we are biologically inferior or we have a problem. It's just that we have been living in environments that have not been as supportive to us in maintaining our healthy living. And just to put it in perspective, if you look at 
life expectancy in the city of Chicago, if you take the green line and you ride from some other places up on the north side where life expectancy can be as much as 90 years old, but you come to Inglewood and that life expectancy drops to 60 years old, just based on where you live because of the impact of the things I just mentioned. So we're, you're just talking about lifestyles, just living daily lifestyles. That's right. There's nothing inherently about being black from a genetic point of view that predisposes us to have that, these problems. It is because of where we live, work, and play, and the opportunities for advancement. Let me give you an example. If you had full employment where people were able to make $60,000 a year, you wouldn't have a lot of these problems and have full access to health and medical care, dental care. You wouldn't have these things. And people had the behaviors where they would go and check their, their health status and their dental status, but also were eating better foods. Uh, and I'm not blaming this on just not just food, but food is a big problem. This cortisol also decreases your immune system and makes you more susceptible to a number of things. So it's really important that we don't look at this in terms of some defect or problem with the people as much as it is the circumstances where the people work, live, and play, the kind of money they can make, and the stress between being able to manage their households from any number of, of vantage points, whether it be financial or whether it be safety or whether it be quality of education, all of these things play into it. Thank you. Wanda, you are a nurse and you are with Urgent Care. Uh, tell us about your patients and who you're working with. Well, I'm a nurse practitioner for um, a, a private um, urgent care um, out of, you know, Indiana and um, Illinois. We have like five locations, I think, in Illinois. I, I work out in Bourbonnais, so it's more of a rural type of environment. It's not as like the inner city, as you would say, um, you know, close to Kankakee. So you do see um, a higher rate of um, poverty because of the area that I'm working out of. Um, but also you see a mix of, you know, um, higher income, um, you know, people also. Um, but, you know, working, you know, in that setting and seeing, you know, the COVID patients, um, you do see, I see like a mix because I see also African-American and, you know, white people also. Um, but it's, it's the lack of um, health care and the lack of, um, you know, um, what, what, what word can I say? Um, hmm. Lack of attention, lack of testing, lack of Lack of testing, lack of, um, because we are a private company, so payment, they, you know, a lot of people can't pay for the test when it first, you know, the COVID first hit. Um, now that it's more lax, you know, it's a little easier, but, you know, it was just a lot of challenges with, you know, people in that particular area because of that. Now, you yourself actually uh, contacted COVID. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Did you get it from your patients or another source? So I'm un unsure where I got it from. Um, I do test patients um, on a daily basis for COVID, especially in the height of COVID when, you know, it first hit in March. We were like one of the first um, urgent cares that did um, testing for COVID.
COVID. Um, so I'm not really sure. My husband um, owns his own transportation business where he goes to dentist offices and, you know, um, you know, hospitals. So I don't know if he contacted COVID and brought it home or I brought it home. Um, but he um, was sick first. And, you know, a week after being tested, you know, I found out that I was sick. And then my 17-year-old got sick also. Um, you know, it was a traumatic experience, um, you know, going through it because you hear about all the disparities being black and, you know, um, you know, we're the ones that's dying the most from COVID. So it was, you know, it was a big, um, it was a big scare for me. Whole family had it. You had it, your husband had it, and your, your child had it too? Yes. My, I, have, I have two children. My eight-year-old didn't get it. Well, she... She probably did have it, but she was asymptomatic. So let's say that. But um, yeah, we didn't test her because we didn't need to. But the whole house basically got COVID. Yeah. Wow, what an experience! And then did you did you quarantine yourself? Yeah, I quarantined myself at home. It, it's kind of hard to quarantine yourself from an eight year old when your husband and your you know older child is sick. You know, yeah. it's really hard. Um, but you know, we managed to do it. I was hospitalized three days um, with um, you know respiratory distress from COVID. Um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a scary ordeal, um, you know, being, working, you know, with patients with COVID and then going through it myself, you know, I really got a chance to see what people really, um, how they really feel with it. On the, you know, employment side, you know, a lot of places are not really, um, that they're not open to when people, when you are, when you do get sick with COVID. I had a lot of challenges as far as that go with my workplace being sick with COVID. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it was a lot. So all is well now? Your family back to work, back to, yep, back to work. normal? Back to normal activities, as normal as we can be. <laughs> this time. Yeah. Dr. Burns, we've not heard from a lot of dentists on COVID, and you all were real close face-to-face -face, uh, with COVID. How did you cope with COVID as a dentist professionally? You know, I... It was very challenging, needless to say, especially because dentists have been identified as one of the highest risk groups for accessibility or spreading COVID. But what they did not say and what they didn't realize that as dentists, we're pretty much familiar with mm -hmm. practicing and having a protocol that protects us and our patients against the spread of infectious diseases. We've always been that way. So it's made patients a little bit more anxious about coming to the dentist. Mm -hmm. um, as far as how it's affected the practice, um, adapting to this new complicated norm has been challenging. It's forced us to have to, in order to ensure the safety of our patients and our dental teams, caused us to have to buy and purchase and use additional PPEs purchase additional supplies um, and equipment for both our front office as well as our clinical areas. It's cost us to have to implement additional disinfecting procedures to ensure a clean environment, uh, an environment that's safe for the patients. Um, we've had, because of that, to schedule fewer patients um, in a given day. So on so an average day, you see how many patients before COVID? Pre-COVID, I, in my practice, saw about 14, 12 to 15 patients a day. So with COVID, that's come down to what? Eight to 10 patients a day. And that's a significant difference. Mm -hmm. And 
needless to say, we have to do that in order to allow more time to properly disinfect in between patients to comply with social distancing. But the bottom line, it does affect our productivity. Did you close down I did. for a while? I, I closed down 75 to 100%. When the state and the city required that we only do emergency treatment, I saw patients for emergency care only. So my practice reduced about 75%. Wow. Uh, I was available, though, to render emergency care, which is very important, very important. Oh, sure. Somebody's got a toothache. I got to go to the dentist. Putting off necessary care can cre create later more complicated dental as well as medical health problems. How did you, like, you, you, you dentists, you, your staff, as you see patients, you had to do some different draping of yourself. Tell me, walk me through that of how you had to drape you in order to see patients and did you do anything different with your patients? Absolutely, okay. Um, patient intake, starting with patient intake, they would have to answer pre-screening questions maybe one to do two days prior to their scheduled dental appointments to make sure that they were healthy enough to be able to be seen by us. If there was something we could manage remotely, we would do that. When they came to the practice, they would have to wait in their car, call us until such a time they can be brought in in order to comply with social distancing. When they came in, they had to wear the face mask. They were required to sanitize their hands. And also we have a thermometer that we took their temperature, forehead thermometer, in order to make sure that they were fine enough to be seen. When they came to the treatment room, we would have them pre-rinse with a 1% solution of hydrogen peroxide to minimize the, the viral load in the oral cavity. Dentistry is known to have a lot of aerosols, so we've had to do certain things, purchase a additional instruments and, and equipment in order to minimize the spread of aerosol while we're working in their mouths. Did you have any patients, did you detect any patients with COVID that you refused to see? No, I have not had that situation actually. We have had patients who have been around because they're health professionals. I've had patients that work in the, the penal system where they are around patients and people who have had COVID as well as family members. But if they were symptom free, we would most certainly see them. Good. Dr. McCollum, you are a um, dental uh, practitioner, and in addition to COVID and probably shutting down, you had another experience, and that is in your compound, the rioters visited. Tell me about that experience and how you coped and what you did with it. We, um, we kept it going. We were able to recovered fairly quickly because of the help of the community. I think that experience showed the best and worst of our community because within 24 hours, uh, people were out cleaning up, supporting one another, 
um, trying to make lemonade out of lemons, basically. I had one of my friends that's an artist, Dorian Sylvain, come and paint up our boards and paint a welcome, we're open, Black Lives Matter on our boards. Um, patients showed up the day after when our suite was still filled with smoke from the um, arson down at the currency exchange. So the patients have been very supportive of the practice. The community's been extremely understanding and loving and caring. So um, the, the protesters, I think, um, the peaceful protesters, we didn't want them to lose their messaging. So we certainly um, just kept it going and we continue to support the, the mission of equality. Um, we have so many people that need our care and they have um, not let COVID stand in their way. Uh, my husband's an oral surgeon, so just like Dr. Barnes, we kept working while the um, shutdown was going on because the governor said emergency care needs to be given for dentistry. So the looting was, traumatic. We had an armed guard that we had um, guarding the property until we got it secured. We were thankful that it was just that one time and we have to invest more in the building now to make sure it's more secure as time goes by. So we've learned some lessons and um, the, the most overriding lesson is the importance of oral health in our community, the significance of dentistry. And as Dr. Barnes said, we've always kind of known about infection control and how to manage that. We've, we've always had enclavable instruments. And so we have had to up our game significantly, but we've kept it in stride. Um, I think Dr. Barnes practice and ours, fortunately, we kind of kept going. Some practices are just now entering into the workforce again, and there's a lot of hesitation. So they're calling us for advice on well, what are you doing? How are you doing this? So I think because we've been able to work through it all, um, we, we are a source of information for people and happy to share how we've been able to stay healthy, for sure, um, and keep all of our staff healthy and all of our patients. We do screening, of course. Um, the, the fact that the testing service is right down the street on 87th and the Dan Ryan at the... Um, movie theater parking lot is just wonderful. So we can always have patients test and pre-screen them. And so I think the state of Illinois has really done a, a pretty good job considering the rest of the country at this point in time in late June. Um, I know it's not over. I know I've just learned to not predict too much of the future. But we're all, we're all living day by day, right? day exactly so you didn't you didn't you never closed down no i kept we put the um voicemail that we're open for emergencies and left my cell number and so every day i was waking up to patients in pain and my husband and i would come down here and dr ferguson and we assisted each other and we just we just got through it and helped as many people as we could but as um miss matthew said when you're a fee-for-service practice it's tough because you really see the disparities and the inabilities of so many people that need care. And unfortunately, we couldn't be open to everyone, but we would call in prescriptions. We would do what we could to alleviate as much of this dental pain as horrible. 
so we did what we could to help as many people as possible. But it did was. You have, did you have any patients that you detected COVID with? No, but a lot of the emergencies weren't our patient base. They were strangers that we really don't know. I, I've got to say, our patient base is the older African-American patient. They come in better dressed than me sometimes with their mask and gloves and face shields. I mean, our patient base is not getting COVID. I mean, they have heeded the warnings. Um, but we did have some folks that worked for Amazon that were continually working that were younger. So we were very nervous. But I think our experience shows us that our infection control held up because knock on wood everybody's okay that's great that's great and you're you're totally restored yeah we're restored in our hearts <laughs> i'm talking about your property our property it's coming along the current the beauty supply guy said he's never coming back but within about 48 hours he said okay i'm coming back i'm, I'm gonna coming back well, the trauma of it, the shock of it, and the drasticness of it. I mean, my goodness, that's the way I've had a, uh, I've had a couple of friends, a, a, a business that's been a stable in our community for all of our lives. Uh, he had a bad experience and he just said, I'm gone. I'm shut down. I'm gone. And um, friends of his were saying, just wait, he's got to get through the trauma and the insurance and the Re re restoring and all that and then we all got to go out and and buy so okay so did he come back is he gonna come not back? not not so far he's still yeah. gone. <laughs> he's still gone. <laughs> they're coming back our two are gonna come back uh. hey chicago you've stayed home for months and saved lives and now because of all your hard work we can go out but we have to be safe. As long as we follow proper precaution, wear face coverings, social distance, we're good to go. Put on some pants, please, and head back to the office. Go ahead, get the pedicure, or get that tattoo that you won't regret. Dine al fresco and eat food you didn't make. Or the libraries are open, check out a book. It's like a podcast, but on paper. Get that root canal. Work on your short game. Enjoy yourself outside. But please remember, be safe, Chicago. And if you'll excuse me, there's one last thing I gotta do. That's better. Be safe, Chicago. Vaccine development for COVID-19 is proceeding at a pace that is far faster than any vaccine development in history. Dr. Baruch is the director of the Center for Virology and Vaccine Research at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He has led groundbreaking work on vaccines for HIV and Zika. Are you concerned you're moving too fast? The goal is not to compromise patient safety at all because ultimately a vaccine absolutely must be safe if it's gonna be administered to large numbers of healthy people. Researchers are taking part of the coronavirus DNA and transferring it into a weakened common cold virus. After it is placed into a cell, the body will produce antibodies triggering an immune response. 
So, uh, Ms. Matthews, let me ask you this. After you have had the experience, after you've done the testing in the various, uh, the various places, what are the safeguards? What do you recommend to us? What are the safeguards for COVID? Well, this is our norm now. That's, that's what I feel like. I feel like since the beginning of COVID, a lot of people are getting herd immunity. Um, from what I feel like, because we don't see people as sick as they were when COVID first hit. Um, a lot of people that's being tested for COVID now are asymptomatic or, you know, have no symptoms or mild symptoms. So what does a asystematic, what does that mean? Meaning they have no symptoms, asymptomatic. But they could have COVID. But they can have COVID, exactly. So if I don't have the symptoms, how, how, tell me, it's, walk me through that. How does that work? I don't have the symptoms, but I've got COVID. How's that work? A lot of um, places are required, like a lot of jobs are requiring that their employers, employees get tested for COVID, um, especially like Amazon, these big companies and things like that, because they've had so many exposures and it's, you know, such a large, you know, company that they're, you know, sometimes randomly send their, you know, their um, employees to get tested. So you won't know, you know what I'm saying, if you're not having symptoms, you know, to get tested, because if you feel okay, you're not going to get tested for COVID. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the thing, you know, I, I feel like herd immunity is, um, you know, it's here because, you know, it's, it's nowhere near it was when it first came. It, the people are nowhere as sick as they was. So um, what we do, we, you know, of course, use um, PPE. Um, we, when we test patients, we, you know, mask up, we gown up, we, you know, use hand sanitizer. We um, use what's called a clean clinic. So we have a tent outside of our clinic where we have our COVID patients, you know, um, come in. When COVID first hit, we also locked our clinic where we didn't have patients coming in the clinic because, you know, you do have those stragglers, the ones that come in and really don't know what's going on, you know, so, um, you know, since COVID has been, you know, a little bit more lax, we now open our clinics back up for patients to come in. Um, but as long as I feel like, as long as you're using the proper PPE, you you know, hand washing, social distancing as much as possible. I mean, possible. You know, the spread is you know is going to be contained. So, do you work uh, with nursing homes? Um, no, we don't work with nursing homes directly, but you know, we have elderly patients that you know come in. Like I said, we we are. Um, a private company. So, you know, we, we take, you know, all type of patients, but not just one particular nursing home, no. But we have a lot of, like, group homes in our area, like um, Shapiro is one of the, like, group homes the state, you know, in our area. And we see a lot of their employees, but none of their patients come to us. Things okay. like that. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Barnes, we've had um, shelter in place for a while, and now we've reopened I'm talking Chicago, I'm talking about Illinois. We've reopened, we can go to restaurants, we can go to the bar and have a drink. Um, too much too soon? Or are we right on target? As we compare to what other states have done, they reopened a lot quicker than we did, and now we see their numbers spiking. What's your, what's your thoughts? Personal opinion is, it's individual. I think it, you have to be judicious about it. You have to make sure that you're protected. You have to make sure that the environment that you're going in is practicing proper disinfectant protocol as well as social distancing and they're honoring that. I personally am still social distancing and sheltering in place more than usual. And- Are you going uh, to restaurants yet? 
I have not. I have not. I am. Um, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait and see what our numbers do. There's, mm-hmm. there's, they're, they're stable. It seems, but like you said, Hermine, everybody's spiking now. So, it's okay. That's scary. I've got friends in LA, and uh, we talk at least two or three times a week. And they were so happy when the beaches opened. And now they call and they're like, do you know these numbers went up? And it was like, we, we can't go to the beach. So everybody's at home 4th of July and doing the barbecue uh, in the kitchen. And, you know, maybe the backyard, but not going outside with the great celebration. A lot of cities have canceled fireworks because of the, the gatherings. Uh, Dr. McCollum, let me ask you this. We've seen the COVID-19, we've seen the shelter in place, we've seen the closing of restaurants and public places, we've seen the cancellations of our festivals and concerts and Bud Billiken Parade for the first time and ever uh, be shut down. Yet, they're telling us we're in phase two in Chicago, Illinois, we're in phase three What's your professional assessment? Where are we? Um, the I, tough question. I know it's a tough question, but what? But it's real. Where are we? I mean, I feel like Dr. Barnes. I I, I eat out. We're all friends. We eat out a lot. Two three times a week, we eat out. I'm not going to a restaurant. I don't want to go to a restaurant. When do you go to the restaurant? Where are we? Yeah, I I think we are, I mean, when you think about the word pandemic, that's the whole entire world. So I think we're just in the early phases of a pandemic. And um, we just have to learn to live with Corona because it's not going anywhere. So I think we just have to find that balance point and each each person's balance point will be different based on their circumstance. As a practicing dentist, I feel like I am responsible to just the profession. So I'm limiting my life significantly because of because of what I do as a caregiver, care provider. You stop doing some, some social things. Yeah, I'm done. It's over. So it's Zoom, it's chit-chatting, but I don't, uh, it's me and my dog on a bike. Um, that's pretty much it. And I think that's going to be it for me. I mean, my hashtag is won't be seen till the vaccine. I'm just like, Oh, I like that. Won't be seen until the vaccine. That's great. I just feel a certain responsibility as a healthcare provider, not to, uh, increase my chances of contracting this. And I feel safe as in my office with all of my stuff on. That's where I feel okay, and I feel okay at home. But aside from the and the grocery stores, I think the grocery stores have done an excellent job. And then you know, luckily I'm in a, a position where I can order things and have it delivered. You know, so I feel very fortunate in that regard, very blessed. So I just want to take that for granted, and I just want to going on. Dr. Mason, we we we've, we've seen COVID with the sheltering. Um, and limitations, social limitations. What's your opinion? Where are we and where are we going? I mean, you know, we've, we've got one thought that says, oh, it's over because the weather's nice. And we've got another thought saying we're in phase two. 
Another thought says, no, we're not in phase two because the weather's nice. And we got another thought saying we're in phase two. Another thought says, no, we're not in phase two because we really didn't leave phase one. We've got protesters out here. We see masks. We don't see masks, but we see the social distancing and the marches certainly isn't being practiced. Where are we? Well, I think we're not where we need to be. Uh, number one, I think that people do not or are not, at least some people are not taking this seriously enough. The problem with the virus is that you can't see it. And just because people aren't coughing or sneezing or having fevers or chills doesn't mean they're fine. And we have what's called a lot of asymptomatic transmission. In other words, people that feel fine, look fine, and everything is fine, but yet can be spreading the virus, as we've seen with the church choirs, as we've seen with a number of instances around the country. We've seen where people have retreated because we don't have a proven vaccine just yet, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but because we don't have it, we don't have any medicinal tools with which to fight this. So the only tools we have are what are called non-pharmacologic uh, opportunities, and that is, or methods, and that is social distancing and blocking the spread of the virus by using masks. And the mask must cover the nose and the mouth because this, this virus, for those of you who've been tested, they put the little thing down your nose and in the back of your throat because that's where that it's in what we call the oral pharynx, that, that that's the mouth and nose channels. That's where it comes from. That's why when for sneeze, and of course, obviously, if you get an infection, well, you can cough it out, or sneeze it out too. So I don't think that we're nowhere where we think we are. I think that we're in a long haul for this. I do not believe that we will see the end of this this year. I believe that we will see more of this in next 2021. Hmm. I believe, based on the evidence that I see, that we have the potential for the regular flu, which kills about 50,000 people every year by itself. And so, with, so with flu season coming, with, with fall and winter, say around October coming, and we're getting ready in Chicago, we, in other mm -hmm. places, we'll get cold, we might get very cold, we might have a light winter, we might have a heavy winter. Will COVID, um, will it get worse? Is it worse in the winter than it is perhaps in the summer, or do we know? Well, I think that we've seen places where it's warm, where we see COVID. It's warm right now in Chicago. It's right. warm right now in the United States, and we're seeing more COVID than ever. Right. Uh, so I think that, and then we've got the flu season that'll rear up and rear up. And I'm concerned that there's some evidence that there may be a mutation already that we're seeing in the coronavirus, a change in that virus. And then addition for to that, or for worse? well, if it changes, that means whatever we came up with probably won't be as effective as it once was thought to be. And so we'll, we'll wait to see what the vaccine looks like. And if I put a shameless plug in, uh, Hermine, on my radio show, we're going to be interviewing the people, you know, the University of Illinois is where some of this trial is going to take place. And we're going to be interviewing for the vaccine, I mean. We're going to be interviewing the physicians in charge of that trial uh, and to determine whether or not 
it's, it's one thing to have a vaccine, but you've got to be sure that it's safe. You gotta go through and the trials. You got, and you gotta test it long enough to see what side effects that you get. And unfortunately, what I'm concerned about is the rush to get a vaccine may, may make some of those steps more truncated than they need to be. Dr. Just, Mason, talk about the trials, because we say trials, but talk about that process. You know, there's animal trials, and then there's the human trials, the experiment. Talk about that, because that's a long process, and I don't think people get that. I think they think yeah. in a week you can do it, and you can't. You're talking about 18 no. months. Walk through the trials. Well, there's, there's different phases of the trial, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. And so we've gone through some of the phase one. That is, do we have it? Have we tested it a little bit in animals? And it goes all the way from that to phase four. We're now testing it in humans. So we tested in a small group of humans, see what happens. Then we move to a much larger group of humans and follow them. But as you know, for everything that we do, sometimes those side effects are not immediately apparent. And sometimes it may take months before you see the side effects. And I'm just concerned, and we're going to be talking a lot about this on Sunday with the investigators, to see where they are in the trials. Have they proven, one, that it works? Haven't they proven that it's safe? And not just safe in animals, is it safe in humans? How much trial did they do? How long did they wait? Because even the flu vaccine that we've been using every year is not without a potential side effect. So I'm, I'm very, very anxious to hear what we're going to be talking about with these investigators on, su- on s- Sunday because we'll get a better idea of where we are. And I'm going to ask the hard questions, Hermine, because before I will even recommend to anybody to take this, I have to be, including myself, because I'm not going to recommend anything to anybody that I wouldn't take or have my family take myself. So, so Terry, I, normally, how long is the trial with a with a new medication coming into market? Depends on how what long it is. is the trial? It depends on what it is. Um, but this trial, those trials could take a year. They could take a year, two years, depending on what it is and what we find out. Uh, what needs to go back sometimes to the drawing board and figure out, well, wait a minute, this is an unintended consequence that we weren't uh, expecting. And so we need to find out why that happened. So these phase, these 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 four different phases are designed to make sure that it works, that it's safe, and it doesn't have any long severe long-term side effects. We are now having forty plus thousand new cases a day. I would not be surprised if we go up to a hundred thousand a day if this does not turn around. And so I am very concerned. If you look at what's going on, and just look at some of the film clips that you've seen of people congregating, often without masks, of being in crowds and jumping over and avoiding and not paying attention to the guidelines that we very carefully put out, we're going to continue to be in a lot of trouble. And there's going to be a lot of hurt if that does not stop. How did a newly emerged coronavirus manage to hold the entire world at its mercy? Why was advanced medical research not able to combat its spread? And is this merely the start of other potentially unstoppable global pandemics?
Dr. Barnes, uh, in your practice, you deal a lot with children as it is time to go back to school. What's your prediction? What's your thoughts on our kids going back to school in September? And in your in your practice, how will you how will you manage that? I mean, this is all scary. Information changes all the time. We don't know. Um, the schools opening up creates an environment where you, it's going to be challenge, challenging to maintain social distancing at schools, especially with children who may forget and may not be diligent like adults would be in terms of complying with distance and protocol. And so, washing your hands. Washing your hands. So it's nervous. It, it makes me nervous. Now, children... We're now hearing, at first we thought that children did not, we heard that children were not susceptible to the virus. Now children are susceptible to the virus. We heard young people weren't susceptible. Now we see a rise in young adults. So this is all very tentative. It's a win. You see on television with uh, LA, Florida, Atlanta, you see the interviews with the younger adults and they say so, and they're at the bar or they're at the restaurant or they're at the party and the question is, so what's your thoughts on COVID? And they casually say, well, if I get it, I get it. And if I die, I die, but I gotta go to the park. That attitude is so, my goodness gracious. Do you realize what you're saying is, I wanna scream to the television, is like, do you really understand not only what you're saying for yourself, but that you can bring it home and you can give it to everybody in the household, la da 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 da, your friends, and my goodness, such such an attitude. Um, uh, Nurse Matthews, we've, we've talked about, we don't have remedies. We don't have medical remedies. The doctor cannot write you a prescription. He cannot give you a shot. What are the home remedies that you can do if you do have COVID to prevent it, uh, to manage it, and to cope with it? What did you do? What we did was we, you know, disinfected as much as we could. Uh, we did practice a lot of social distancing as far as, you know, um, isolating the washrooms and, um, you know, sleeping quarters. You know, we tried to make our eight-year-olds stay in the room as much as possible, you know, to stay away as much as possible. Oh, that was hard. It, it was so hard. She was so heartbroken, to, you know, for everybody to have it in the house and her not to have it. She wasn't able to get hugs and kisses. She wasn't, you know, able to do none of that. She wasn't able to go out. You know, because nobody wants, a, you know, a child in their house and then know the whole family has COVID, you know, so it was, you know, it was really difficult for her. How did you deal? How did you deal with your meals? Um, I mean, we just went ahead as normal because what can you do? Honestly, um, my niece also lives with me. She's 16. She didn't get it either. Um, she wouldn't eat with us, um, unfortunately. She would, you know, she wouldn't. I mean, because she was afraid to get it, and she didn't get it. Um, so she would, you know, stay in her room a lot, and, you know, she would take her food to her room. Um, you know, we would, you know, try to eat in our rooms instead of eating in a common area like we usually would. 
um, you know, disinfecting. We was wearing masks around the house. Um, it was it was kind of difficult for a while. So what did, what did you do? Did you bite them up? Did you do the zinc and the vitamin C and tea, money? No. What did did you do any of that? No, I didn't do none of that. I'm just being honest. Um, when I was hospitalized, they gave me um, cochicine, uh, which is supposed to help with the decreasing the inflammation, supposedly. Um, so they gave me that when I was hospitalized. My husband didn't. Um, his doctor gave him some azithromycin, which didn't do anything. He was just, I guess, just trying to see what was going to happen. Knowing, you know, when you have a virus, an uh, antibiotic is not going to do anything for it. My 17-year-old didn't have anything. We just really like waited out. We we did take a lot of um, where my husband and my 17-year-old because they had the fevers. They did have a lot of um, like Tylenol and you know products or whatever. But I didn't get a fever. Not none of the time that I had COVID. I didn't have a fever. So, you know, it was, it was, it was very unique and very interesting. And so the symptoms are different. Now here's, you're talking about three people and you all had really different symptoms. Different symptoms, symptoms. Yes. Very different. My husband had the worst. I think he was the sickest with 102, 103 fevers. Um, he had everything. He had the fevers. He had the cough. He had the shortness of breath. He had the diarrhea, the stomach upset, the insomnia. Um, my 17 year old, she was sick probably a week. She had the fevers and a sore throat and headaches. Um, as far as I went, I had more fatigue, chest pain, and severe shortness of breath is what I had. Um, so the symptoms were totally different um, out of all of us. It was, it, was just, it was just crazy. And like I say, my eight-year-old probably did have it. She was just asymptomatic and didn't have any symptoms from it. So yeah, it was a big... Hey. Dr. McCollum, the asystematic is worrisome because, I mean, how do you know you have it and you don't have the symptoms and who should be tested? Should everybody go be tested? Everybody should be tested. Often. <laughs> Often. Not, not one time, but multiple times. Weeks, I'm getting tested. Yeah, I think everyone should. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that's why our numbers in the state of Illinois are, you know, as robust because people are understanding that testing is key. It's essential when it comes to public health, you know, how you try to manage a pandemic. You got to know where it is and track it and and see what you can do to contain it. So testing is, is an important part of this whole equation. I have a, I have a comment. Um, you think everyone should be tested. Me, on the other hand, I don't think everyone should be tested. And I say that because now that COVID is, you know, everyone know that COVID is here. Employers, everybody is so lax now with COVID. I have people that's getting tested every day and they're required to go back to work, whether they're positive or negative, even though they know they're supposed to be in that self-quarantine until their results come back or that 10 day. So, I mean, I, I'm on the I'm on the fence when it comes to that. If you're having severe symptoms, yeah, um, you know, you you need to stay away. But people are not. I'm seeing this every day. People come in and get tested. They're they supposed to wait the three to five days at, at least until the results come back. They're at work or they out and about. No masks, no anything. So I mean, it's it's. I'm telling you, this is what I'm seeing every day now. When it when COVID first hit, yeah, people was really you know staying quarantined, staying at home. Now people don't do that anymore. Here's something I've seen that's noticeably different. Uh, I've had occasion to go uh, north side Chicago, northern suburbs. Uh, white folks are not wearing masks. And I see them still out playing basketball, picnicking in the park, 
not necessarily doing social distance. Do you see a racial difference? I do. Is I there know. a racial difference? Yeah, and an age difference. I think the older Americans, the people that are in that high-risk group, they're, um, I think they're more motivated. But the so-called high-risk group, because we've seen high-risk go from older, and now we're younger. Right. So the high-risk group has changed. I mean, I think all of it, it's a virus, so everybody's susceptible to it. You can't control a virus by a demographic. And fortunately, in this country, there's also a political difference. Ah, our president does not wear a mask. So they don't think they should wear a mask. I'll be honest, I haven't seen um, the racial part of it where, you know, certain race wear a mask and certain race don't wear a mask. Um, I have seen that younger people are more lax. Like I have 16, 17-year-olds in my household. They don't get the, even though my 17-year-old was sick and she's afraid of getting sick again, but they don't see the, the um, urgency of the matter because they exactly. still, mm-hmm. still want to live their life. They still want to do things. They still want to go with their friends, you know. So it's, it's, really, it's really hard, you know, when you, when you have all spectrums of it. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, having me, you know, being a nurse practitioner, my husband being in the field, me having, you know, teenagers to an 8-year-old, it's, it's, it's a wide variety of, you know, differences. You it's know? all over the place. It's and we're place. talking generally. Dr. Mason, we're seeing Europe do some different things, different than Americans. Europe is, uh, some European countries have said, Americans not welcome, don't come. What are the European differences uh, in their practice to COVID-19 different than the United States? And are there some things that we might be looking at that we might borrow and implement? Yeah, there are a number of things that, uh, first of all, I think these countries are taking this far more seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, London's already had a lockdown. Uh, and uh, a lot of these other countries, Italy's had a lockdown. I mean, remember, they, they got very, very serious with the, the non-pharmacological interventions. That's the social distancing. That's the, you know, all of the different things that we have to fight where we don't have medications or vaccines yet. So I think that that's what we have to do. And in fact, there are countries now that are not allowing Americans to come to their countries. What countries are those, Dr. Mason? You can't go to some of the countries in the East. And I've understood that even London now, I mean, even England is shutting down traffic, all traffic. I have a friend of mine is in the travel industry. They can't, no, no one from the United States can come. And there's even some states within the United States where if you do go, they want you to mandatorily quarantine for 14 days before you release yourself into the public. And I think New York is putting some of that in place and they're creating penalties around this whole situation. We they see the problem is because you can't see it, because it doesn't always sick initially, you don't think it's serious. My mama would say, some of us don't believe fat meat is green, <laughs> but we've got to understand that this is as real as it gets. These, we're, we're seeing more and more, those states that opened up earlier, allowed things to go back to quote unquote normal, whether it was for financial reasons, political reasons, we're seeing surges in those states right now. Look at Houston. They, from what I understand, they're almost at total capacity within their intensive care units. Mm-hmm. The case before they did this. And so I think that we have to take the, we have to do the best we can do with the tools that we have and realize that until we get a vaccine that's been proven and is safe 
for to be administered and works, we are only left with those things that we have, social distancing, covering our cough and sneeze, wearing masks. Symptoms, and I'll say this very quickly and be done, symptoms are the absolute wrong way to think about a disease. I don't care what the disease is, from cancer to a common cold to what have you. When you get a symptom, that is not early in any disease process. That is late. So when we talk about symptoms of cancer, that's stupid. Because by the time you get a symptom from a cancer, it's usually always advanced. If we're talking about a symptom even from COVID, by the time you have a symptom and it's due to COVID, you're already spreading all of this stuff around already. By the time you look at breast cancer, if you get a symptom from breast cancer, that's late. So what we have to do is this mentality has to be broken and we have to use the early detection messages because there's no symptom of a heart attack early on. I just feel like there, there needs to be some reining in um, on policy that, that allows us to learn from this experience and, and improve our healthcare system significantly. I think the impact of COVID-19, no matter who you are and where you are, we have seen our medical health system yeah. be so important, more right. so than, than, than normal. We saw that impact. We saw it with the, with the, with the, with the frontline uh, workers. We've seen it with the doctors. We've seen the importance of going to the doctor and with, 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 all, of the, uh, with all of the detections. Um, but we've seen how important the medical community is to us to have it, not to have it. Mm -hmm. uh, those have been some important. And then I think, secondly, we go into the impact of the politics. Right. Government is now telling us what we can and cannot do, uh, no matter who we are. I mean, if, if ever there was a time to say how important voting is right. and what it means, if you don't get it now, forget yeah. about it. You'll never, you'll never get it because government is telling us where we can go, what we can do, who we can see, um, how long you can stay. I'm so happy the lakefront just opened because I was going crazy because I couldn't take my walk just right. down the lakefront. I didn't realize how important that was. All the things that we have taken for granted, uh, I think have diminished. Uh, to call a friend and say, let's do dinner. Uh, it's, it's gone. The food that you eat, you start looking at your food differently. I don't need that. I need this. And you just look at all of these healthy measures that you began to, uh, that you began to put in place that very honestly, we've just taken for granted. We've just, we've just taken these things for granted. Um, uh, your kids can't go to school. So you're, you're, you're teaching at home. You're, you're, whether you can teach or not, God bless these children. I don't know what's going to happen to our educational system. Mm -hmm. um, with the with the kids uh, at home, and um, you do have a medical problem. What do you do? Uh, medicine stopped for a while. Uh, I've had a couple of friends who needed uh, had planned some surgeries. Well, the plan went away. They couldn't get the surgeries because the hospitals weren't doing elected surgeries. Everything was devoted to COVID. We saw McCormick turn into hospital. 
unbelievable. So, I mean, we've seen some drastic things happen in our society that, uh, that will probably be with us. I don't know if it'll be with us forever, but it'll be with us for, for a long time. It'll be with us. Our world has changed. Thank you all for your, for your wisdom and for sharing your experiences with us and the changes that you've uh, brought forth in your own, not only your practices, but in your lives. And thank you very much from all of us for being on the front line and um, taking care of us. You're welcome. Thank you, Hermine. Thank you, Hermine. Thank you. My message to the American people is that I know that there's a lot of concern and, and energy about getting back to normal. It's a great stress on people to be locked in, but there's a fundamental basic thing that you should be doing is don't throw all caution to the wind so that you can open up and help the economy by getting jobs back and doing things like that. But that doesn't mean that you walk around without a mask, that you jump into a crowd, that you stop washing your hands, that you stop doing the things that are important. So, so the plea is that from a public health standpoint, you'd want to do it this way. If you're not going to do it this way, then at least do these things. Hi, I'm Hermine Hartman, bringing you a special edition of Indigo Studio, COVID Wild Black. And we're brought to you through a special fund, journalism fund, from the McCormick Foundation. The McCormick Foundation funds communities in Chicago land and across Illinois with programs that are educational, informative, and engaging with our citizens. The fun is to strengthen democracies, and that's what we've done today. We've talked to citizens about COVID-19. It's been an engaging conversation, and we thank you for being with us and hope this information has been helpful. Indigo Studio, COVID Wild Life, brought to you by McCormick Foundation. Thank you.